I'll begin my introduction of this great Israeli writer in an odd way, namely by quoting a second great Israeli writer commenting on a third great Israeli writer. It's a pretty good club to be a member of. Um, in his memoir, A Time of Love and Darkness, Amos Oz, that's the second writer, tells of his encounters with Shmuel Yosef Agnon, that's the third the first, but I'm sure not the last, uh, Israeli winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Oz says that he learned from Agnon, among other things, to cast more than one shadow. It's a great phrase and apt for describing the diversity of persons and gifts harbored in our speaker today in that chair. So he is first simply a great and justly celebrated novelist. I won't list the prizes he's won, that'd take a long time, or the more than 20 languages into which his work has been translated. I will note that in 2006 he won Israel's Brenner Prize, the highest Israeli literary honor there is for his novel A Pigeon and a Boy, which also won the National Jewish Book Award in this country. I'll also note the surprising and happy fact that readers actually buy his books. His first great work, The Blue Mountain, Hebrew's Roman Roussi, is one of the five best-selling books in the history of Israeli publishing, and I love this combination of popularity and artistic excellence. It's really exhilarating. Um, a thing that makes him unusual as a writer, you might call this a second shadow, is that he understands, i.e. understands artistically what many writers don't, namely that the world we live in is only in part a human world, and that understanding our world means being curious about the sentient beings we share it with, or could learn to share it with better. It's not accidental that there's a chapter in Beginnings, the book of biblical commentary, that's the occasion for today's event and that Mayor will be reading from, that there's a chapter called The First Animal. It's not accidental that among his prizes is one invented for him called the Entomological Prize. I'll ask him about that later. And it's not accidental that what for me is the greatest passage in A Pigeon and a Boy is about the heroic and redemptive flight of a carrier pigeon. If you haven't read that book, then as soon as this event is over, you should rush out and get yourself a copy of it. The passage in question is about two-thirds of the way through, and it's as good as Melville on whales or tortoises and flat-out amazing which would be enough shadows, surely, but here are two more. Uh, first, a writer is also a citizen, and when one is lucky, the writer is also a public intellectual, able to be articulate on matters of public concern. I haven't read the newspaper columns Meir has been writing for Yudiot Achronot, but I have read a remarkable speech he gave in 2007, and I think that anyone of any political persuasion, and I'm sure there are lots of political persuasions here, who values plain speaking, the plain speaking that those who are capable of complex speaking know best how to create, I'm sure that anyone, therefore, will admire Shalev's voice here, which I'm quoting Adam Keller's translation. I quote, Mr. Prime Minister, you said that you are working for us. Well, you are fired. Mr. Defense Minister, you said that Nasrallah will never forget your name. Neither shall we. But the urgent need for a vision to guide us to a better future is something which your successors will have to address, not you. From you, we expect and demand just this. Go home Goodbye. Finally, at least for our purposes, and skipping over Meir's children's books and his interest in jeeps and motorcycles, uh, he's a terrific biblical commentator. That's not so easy. There are so many commentators who've come before, so many voices swirling around that it's hard to find one's own voice. But Shalev's voice is distinctive, commonsensical, tenacious, discriminating, comradely.
He has a genius for asking simple questions and a relentless and thoughtful stubbornness in answering them. He brings to his task a novelist's insight into narrative and character, but he never yields to the novelist's temptation, never, that is, imagines that he himself has written the biblical text, always has his eye and maybe, more importantly, his ear attentively focused on the text before him. Please join me then in welcoming Meir Shalev, in whom all these shadows or all these modes of illumination as well, since light and shadow are inextricably linked, in whom all these lights and shadows happily coexist. Thank you so much for inviting me and for coming here. Uh, and for your kind words, Larry, I, I was really, I'm thankful and surprised. Um, I, I will talk, uh, we will talk to, uh, this evening about uh, my new book here. It was just published today, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, released today, beginning, uh, first times in, in the Bible. Um, and I will read in Hebrew a uh, few of the, the first sentences of the uh, chapter called The First Loving Woman. Uh, I dedicated the chapter for The First Loving Woman because she is also the last loving woman in the Bible. We have only one loving woman in, in the Bible, which is a book full with uh, impressive uh, women different kind of, of women that even in those ancient chauvinist patriarchalistic patriarchal uh, days uh, managed to stand and and be seen even in this text which is full with men who were kings and generals and prophets and thinkers and there are these women in the Bible who are very impressive, uh, very strong, clever, and and one of them, Michal, the daughter of King Saul, is also the only woman about which it is told that she loved a man. We have uh, we have other uh, two other loving women, but one of them is Ruth, who loved her mother-in-law, maybe the, the only one, not only in the Bible. <laughs> And, and then there is uh, Rivka, Rebecca, who loved her son Jacob. When I say she loved her son Jacob, I don't mean that other women did not love their sons in, in the Bible. What I mean is that in this book I was a little formal. And when I'm looking for love or laugh or crying or laughter in the Bible, I'm looking for the word itself. I don't do it via interpretation. I'm looking for the word love to appear in the text, or if I discuss the first laugh of the Bible, I'm looking for, for, for the word laugh, or the, 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 the first uh, any other feeling which appears in the Bible, I'm looking for the word itself, So because otherwise I will have endless uh, arguments with, with other interpreters, and this is, this is why I chose this way. Uh, I will read a few lines from the beginning of The First Loving uh, uh, Woman uh, about Michal, and I will read this in Hebrew, not only because I want you to, to listen to this uh, exotic uh, uh, special language, but also because this is the, the language in which the Bible was written and still read by, uh, by Jewish people. It is kind of a linguistic miracle that the Hebrew language uh, is still understood by people today. Uh, I mean, we can read, Hebrew-speaking people can read a text that was written 3,000 years ago and understand most of it. Uh, and this is something that I'm, I dare to say does not exist in any other language. You cannot give... Uh, uh, somebody in Rome, uh, a text that was written in the times of Julius Caesar and expect him to read it and understand it. You cannot do it 
in, in, in Athens and you cannot do it in the Arabic language. All these old languages have uh, uh, developed into... And, and now we have classical language and or a dead part of the language and the modern day spoken and used language. In Hebrew it is still the same. This is because the Hebrew language was in a kind of coma for 2,000 years. It was used only for ceremonial and religious purposes in weddings, in the synagogue, in funerals, uh, and, and it was not used in daily life. Part of the Zionist revolution was reviving the Hebrew language, and it was a successful revolution. Maybe uh, uh, one of the greatest achievements of, of, the, of the Jewish revolution was this linguistic uh, revolution. So when I read the text from my book, which is written in modern Hebrew, and if by any chance King David or Jesus Christ will come here to this uh, space, they will be able to understand some of the words I'm reading now. The same way I can understand some of the words they wrote, they will not understand the words for a car or a telephone or a computer, but they will understand everything that has to do with love and death and feelings and stupidity and uh, wisdom, and, and these words will be familiar to them. So I will read a little in Hebrew. <laughs> רותה מואביה שאהבה את נעמי חמותה, ומיכל בת שאול שאהבה את דוד בעלה. מכאן שמיכל אינה רק האישה הראשונה שמיוחסת לה אהבה לגבר, היא גם היחידה. וכך מודגשות העוצמה והטרגיות של אהבתה. למרבה הצער, הייתה האהבה הזאת לא רק חד פעמית, אלא גם חד כיוונית, כצפוי מאישיותו של בעלה. Thank you. So the way we worked it out, I will read a selection from within this chapter, of which Meir read the beginning in Hebrew, the chapter called The First Loving Woman. The translation is by Stuart Schoffman, by the way. In all the Bible, only three women are designated as loving. Rebecca, who loved her son Jacob, Ruth, the Moabite, who loved her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Michal, daughter of Saul, who loved her husband, David. Michal is not just the first biblical woman who is said to love a man. She is the only one, which serves to emphasize the power and tragedy of her love. Alas, this love was not just unique in the Bible it was also unrequited, predictably, given her husband's personality. David, it will be recalled, was good-looking, smart, a military hero and musician, and God was with him. But he had another quality, not explicitly pointed out in the text, but apparent from the story, he was a much-loved person. More precisely, he was the most beloved person in the Bible. Perhaps this was the true tragedy of Michal, who loved a man who was loved by so many, a man who didn't need to lift a finger to win the heart of others, which is why his emotional life became so distorted and corrupt. Just as David didn't love any of those who loved him, he also didn't love Michal. But here things were worse because she was, as noted, the first and only loving wife in the Bible. The authors of the Bible made sure to tell us about loving men, of whom there are many, Isaac loved Rebecca, Samson loved Delilah, Achashverosh loved Esther, Jacob loved Rachel, Elkanah loved Hannah, and in Second Chronicles, King Rehoboam loved Maacah. In each of these examples, the word love explicitly appears. Even two biblical rapists are said to have loved. Amnon loved Tamar, and Shechem, son of Hamor, loved Dinah. 
but it is never written that David loved Michal, nor does his behavior indicate that he loved her. She and her brother Jonathan on two separate occasions helped David escape from Saul, but David parted from Jonathan with tears and kisses which were absent when he parted from Michal. Later, David met in secret with Jonathan, but made no attempt to meet with her. If he had wanted to, he would have found a way. He had already pulled off greater feats of daring, and when her father gave her to another man, he did not object or protest. According to one version, David won Michal as a prize for his victory over Goliath, By another version, she was given in exchange for a unique bride price, 100 Philistine foreskins. Either way, from Michal's point of view, this was a love story. But from David's perspective, Michal was simply a worthwhile political deal. She was the king's daughter, and his marriage to her improved his status and future prospects. This consideration reappeared years later after Saul died and David became king in Hebron. Abner, son of Ner, Saul's military chief, wanted to make a pact with him, and David agreed, but with one clear condition. Good, he responded to Abner, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall never appear in my presence unless you bring Saul's daughter Michal when you come to see me. David made the same demand of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, whom Abner had crowned king of Israel. Deliver me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed at the price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. It is easy to read his true intention. David insists on getting Michal back because a deal is a deal. He does not speak of love, but instead cites the fact that he had fulfilled the terms of the agreement he had made with her father Saul. He demands her return to show that he is Saul's heir and that the remnants of Saul's house have bent to his will. And Michal is indeed returned to David, the man she loved. But David, who never loved her, brought her back to a new situation different from the one she remembered. Their forced separation several years earlier was a dramatic scene of betrayal, danger, and love. Saul sent assassins to murder David, and Michal saved him. She lowered a rope or a sheet from their bedroom window and held onto it while David climbed down. He continued on his way as she stood at the window, watching him disappear in the distance. He married more women, and she was left holding the sheet, waiting for the day she could again spread it over their bed. Her father gave her to Paltiel, son of Laish from Galim, and when she was taken from him and returned to David, the latter was already king and had a harem with six more beds, a new woman in each one. Abigail, wife of Nabal the Carmelite, Achinoam of Jezreel, Ma'aka, daughter of the king of Geshur, Chagit, Abital, and Eglah. There were also six little boys, one by each woman, and apparently a fair number of girls who, as is common in the Bible, go unmentioned, uncounted, and nameless. The big blow-up was not long in coming. It erupted on an especially important and festive occasion, the day that David brought the Ark of God to Jerusalem. David, wearing a linen ephod, a priestly garment, danced with great vigor before the Ark of his God, and I quote, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. 
From a window, she had once watched him escape and disappear. From a window, she looks again now. This is how she is used to seeing him, then disappearing, now leaping and dancing in front of all the people. She did not like either sight. After the ceremonies and celebrations, David came home and Michal went out to meet him. She did not come out to congratulate him, but to express contempt and criticism for his wild leaping and dancing, which she saw as conduct unbecoming his kingly status. It is clear to the reader that this wasn't the real reason and surely not the only one. Michal seized the opportunity to pay him back and heap her bitterness upon him. This was a unique conflict, one of Israel's finest. Not the conflict of priest and prophet or general and king, but the conflict of man and wife. These two were king and queen, each endowed with a sharp tongue, and they also had an excellent author, the envy of any literary hero. Michal was not of the common people. She was a king's daughter, polished in speech, and she made sure to address her noble husband in the third person, which in these circumstances amplified her disdain. How glorious was the king of Israel today, she said, her voice soft and measured and precise, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the maidservants of his servants as one of the low fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. The choice of the verb uncover is not coincidental. It recalls the story of Noah, who after the flood got drunk and he lay uncovered inside his tent, in other words, stripped of his clothes. It is very likely that Michal meant that David's nakedness was shamelessly exposed as he danced before the ark of God. Indeed, the Hebrew verb to uncover appears in the Bible any number of times to connote nakedness and also illicit sexual relations, including incest. The garment worn here by David is also of significance, the linen ephod, the upper garment worn by priests. Its mention in this story brings to mind the verse in Exodus 28, wherein the priests are commanded to wear trousers under this ephod, specifically to prevent such indecent exposure, to cover their nakedness. It is also likely that Michal had a special aversion to this type of uncovering to the exposure of the body at moments of religious fervor because her father Saul had done the same thing. It was after Michal allowed David to escape from him. Saul then encountered a group of prophets led by Samuel, I quote, and the Spirit of God was upon him also, and he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night." In the case of her father, this is written explicitly, and it may well be that Michal feared seeing her husband in a similar state. Either way, David was no nitwit. He answered Michal with the same sharp mockery she had directed at him. It was before the Lord who chose me in place of your father and all his family and appointed me prince over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. David, of course, was endowed with musical talent. He knew how to orchestrate and perform that last sentence whose words and tone both smack of hatred and the desire to hurt. Certainly, he stressed the words, your father and me, which gave the whole line a hostile ring. Michal also knew how to choose her words and make them hit home, but David 
was more blunt and aggressive. He was quick to include her family and parents, as warring couples are wont to do. Like her, he showed the ability to apply the poison in just the right dosage. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, he continued, and I will be abased in my own eyes, but by the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. In other words, I am prepared to degrade myself even further because I think more highly of those maidservants than I do of you. Both of them, David and Michal, had a clear theatrical streak. In the case of Michal, now is when we first see it. It was earlier apparent in David's speeches to Goliath, in his impersonation of a madman before Achish, the king of Gat, and when he confronted Saul in the desert after he cut off the edge of his garment and stole his spear and water jar. Both David and Michal wrote, directed, and acted out this scene of conflict, each playing his or her role to perfection. The reader can easily imagine the way they stood, Michal erect and unyielding, David relaxed and loose, and how they spoke. In this nasty argument, no voices were raised. Both spoke quietly and calmly in contrast to the venomous content. The reader is invited to try this out. He or she will discover that reading the words at high volume diminishes their power. They are effective when uttered with a whisper of a snake, not the roar of a lion. When I read these lines, by which I mean when Mayer reads these lines, awful from an emotional perspective and marvelous from a stylistic one, it is clear to me that they were penned by a very talented author. It might be the same person who wrote the dialogue between Judah and Tamar in Genesis 28 and the deliberations of the servants of the elderly David 30 years hence in the matter of the attendant brought to him to make him warm. One needs considerable literary skill to write like this, to characterize a speaker through his speech alone, its tone and content. What is important is the little addendum, the terrible line at the end of the fight that seems almost offhand. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Michal was not a barren woman. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us she had five children, the children who will later be handed over by David to be killed by the Gibeonites. Some commentators argue that these were the children of her sister, Merab, and there is evidence for that, but it may also be that these were Michal's children by Paltiel, son of Laish, the man to whom she was given by Saul, after David's escape. There are those who say that Michal was punished by God, who closed up her womb for her effrontery when the Ark of God was brought to Jerusalem. I do not see it that way. In my view, the statement that sealed her fight with David signals the end of their conjugal life. David never again came to Michal and Michal, the first and only female lover in the Bible, did not sleep with the husband she loved, whether her celibacy was imposed or voluntary is another question the Bible leaves unanswered. I'm going to read two more passages, both of them brief, one uh, from a later moment in the chapter the moment at which uh, Meir is describing how David in old age, perhaps in senility, perhaps in impotence, um, certainly in a state of physical cold, uh, was brought a young woman attendant to make him warm. This is the passage. And the girl was very pretty, and she attended the king and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. 
The reader reads on, not believing his eyes. Again, he asks himself, why is such gossip written about King David? Why does the Bible print such tabloid trash? Even our own newspapers, which are regularly accused of cheap sensationalism, do not publish stories like this about our heads of state. Why here do we find such a pathetic and gratuitous story as this, suited for the winks and whispers of palace servants, but which has no place in the pages of Holy Writ. There are two reasons. First, the Bible seeks to make clear that David is being punished for the sin of taking Bathsheba. The king who sinned out of lust is being punished with lack of lust. He whose lust was so great that it led him to adultery and murder has now lost it completely The second reason is that the punishment is expressed in ongoing mockery, earlier of his physical condition and feeble mind, and now of his impotence. The rabbis of the Talmud, who here too rose to David's rescue, claimed that Abishag complained about David's lack of sexual capability, and to prove to her that his manliness remained intact, the old king slept with Bathsheba either 18 or 13 consecutive times. I cannot recall the exact number, but I have no desire to verify this sort of commentary, which is designed to prove to the frustrated warmer and upright reader that the Hebrew vigor of King David still stood. I therefore prefer the Jewish joke of a later era, wherein after David's death, Abishag goes home, where beside the well of Shunem, she is asked by her girlfriends how it went in the big city and the palace of the king. Abishag answers, I now understand the difference between it's been an honor and it's been a pleasure. And these, this is the conclusion of the chapter the last two paragraphs. Notwithstanding all the revelations about his character in the books of Samuel and the opening of First Kings, David's enormous charisma is still in force today. It turns out that the people love and miss him, not because of the revisionism and censorship of the book of Chronicles, but despite the unvarnished version published in Samuel. From our distant vantage, The attempts by commentators and rewrite men to clear him of sin seem utterly superfluous and silly. Readers forgive him even when they know the truth. Maybe it is because he repented and said to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. Or maybe it is the memory of his younger self so attractive and lovable. David did not disobey a direct order from God, as Saul had done. He did not worship other gods, as his son Solomon later did. But he committed a heinous moral sin and begat a generation of corrupt, spoiled, and unworthy princes who inherited his bad qualities and none of his good ones. The Bible connects all this to the story of Uriah and Bathsheba, but the problem began earlier with the love that was lavished on him by all who saw him and with his attitude toward his first wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, the first and only biblical woman who loved. I want to thank you for a beautiful reading. It's the first time I, I hear my text aloud in, in another language. And thank you. It's really beautiful. Thank it's, you. it's a great privilege to get to read it. Um, you can tell that about a text, by the way. I mean, uh, as you look at it on the page and you think it's one thing, and then you let it pass through your mouth and... You're testing it in a way, and it meets that very hard test. Okay, so I'm supposed to ask uh, Meir some questions, and he's supposed to answer them or respond to them as he sees fit. Um, 
I have, the first question I have is about biblical writers. Um, you say very praising things about the writer who wrote the scene that you described, uh, the encounter between David and Michal. But there are other biblical writers you really don't like very much at all. Um, at one point, you refer to the writers of the, well, you refer to the book of Chronicles itself. You say, the people who devised and wrote this bad book, which one might call the Soviet Encyclopedia of the Jewish People. <laughs> and what I'm wondering is, still, am I right in thinking that you see the Bible as put together by you know, a bunch of writers, some telling one story and some another, some of them good and some of them just flat-out lousy? Is that, is that the way you see it? Well, in the case of Chronicles, this is not a matter of flousiness. It's not that there are bad writers, but, but their motivation is, 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 uh, should not be praised because what Chronicles tries to do is to erase and, and whitewash all the sins of David as described in, in the book of Samuel. Now, the author of Chronicles, who wrote his book hundreds of years after the author of Samuel, thought that he will give the last version of the history of David and he will eternalize him as a just king without knowing that the later editors of the Bible will give us both versions. So in the book of Chronicles, you don't find uh, the sin of uh, Uriah and Bathsheba and you do not find uh, the rebellion of Absalom and you don't find the rape of Tamar, the daughter of David, by her half-brother, and you don't find the murder of Absalom by his brother Amnon, all the, the stains on, on the talit of David are removed in the dry cleaning of, of <laughs> Chronicles. And, and if you read Chronicles alone, you, should, you, should, you will find a completely different David, you know, a, a boring, just uh, king who was... Uh, you know, no sexual uh, uh, drive, no Machiavellian uh, uh, aspects of behavior as, as he did, uh, nothing special in his personality. Uh, um, luckily, we, we can read both versions today, criticize one or criticize both or, or praise one or both, but still we have a possibility to compare. And the interesting thing is that in the test of generations, in the test of time, it is interesting politically to see that even though we know that King David was not a, a just person the way Chronicles tries to present him, uh, he still is beloved and cherished by Jewish people till today. This is unbelievable. Uh, uh, there is a great uh, effort by the, by the Talmudic rabbis to, 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 clear him, to clean him as well, but still there is something very charming and attractive in this, in this king who, whose personality has so many contradicting uh, traits. On the one hand, he's an artist, he's a musician, and, and he's the writer of songs, he's a poet. On the other hand, he's, uh, he's a murderer and his lust for women uh, it takes him astray. Uh, he, he's a hero, he's, a, he's, he's writing players. He, he's a very interesting diversified personality and I think it still attracts people today. If you, if, you, if you look at our behavior in Israel today, I would say that if the people of Israel will, will be able to choose who is the one character of the Bible do, they want to come out of his grave and be our leader or just come for a visit today, it won't be Abraham and it won't be Moses, it will be David. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pick up on a reference you made in answering that question. You referred to the rabbis of the Talmud wanting to you know, clean up the act, uh, David's act in, in particular. And, and at various moments in this book, you, you make sharp-tongued comments sometimes, admiring comments at other times, about the commentators who preceded you, who are obviously very numerous. At one point... You write, I can't resist quoting just a bit more, generations of rabbis, commentators, and rewrite men donned their overalls, took their trowel in one hand and sandpaper in the other, and the plastering job was done on the house of David. Uh, what I want to ask you is, 
you're reading some of these commentators who preceded you, and, and some of them are helping you, and some of them are getting in your way? Is that... No, so, some I appreciate a lot, and I think they have beautiful interpretations. For example, if you take the interpretation of Rashi, uh, not a Talmudic rabbi, of course, but much later, of, of, but the greatest uh, interpreter of, of the Bible, Rashi, for example tried to explain the fact that, that Isaac, the son of Abraham, got married only at the age of 40. You know, a Jewish bachelor of 40 years old is something that even today attracts a lot of attention from the family, the relatives, from the neighbors, from everybody is talking about it. How come Isaac waited 40 years to be married and, and Rashi says 1,000 years before Sigmund Freud, he says that Isaac was not able to love a woman, but only after his own mother died. This, this is something very interesting. This, I think, is a work of a genius. He doesn't interpret one unclear word, old Hebrew word in the Bible. It, it interprets a personality of, of a character. On the other hand, when, when I see interpreters whose main target, whose main purpose of working is to make the biblical heroes nicer and, and better than what the Bible describes them, this is when I become suspicious because I know this kind of spokesman in modern day politics as well, and I don't like to find them in, in the Bible. You know, this, they should be pointed out. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I, I would love to pursue this, but I, I, there's a question I want to ask that comes out of a conversation we had earlier, and besides I promised I was going to ask you about it. What's the story about the entomological prize you won <laughs> for your work? Well, when I just said that, that, uh, that Isaac got married at the age of 40 and I published my first novel at the age of 40, uh, which means I, I never wanted to become a writer as a child. You quoted Amos Oz in the story of Love and Darkness. Mm -hmm. He describes in this great book uh, that at the age of five he already wrote a little note saying Amos Klosner, this was his name then, a novelist or a writer, and he put it on, on the door of his room when he was a child. Uh, if I had I done the same, I would write Meir Shalev, an entomologist or a zoologist, and put on, on my door because I didn't want to become a writer. We have enough writers in our family. I wanted to, to become a zoologist, and I was raising at home at, since the age of six uh, spiders and scorpions and snakes and, uh, and butterflies and caterpillars and all kind of uh, little uh, uh, creatures. My father was horrified. My mother, my mother encouraged me. Uh, and I really wanted to become a zoologist. And I did not become a zoologist. But till today, uh, uh, animals from all sizes and, and classes are in my books. And when I published my first novel, uh, a Russian novel in Hebrew, The Blue Mountain in, in English, um, one day I got a call from, from a, a professor in the Vulcani Institute, uh, researchers of, of agriculture in Israel, saying they want to give me the, this year a special prize they never give, gave before, never had before, the Entomological Literary Prize for Fiction. <laughs> I think I'm the only writer in the world who, who got such a prize. They invited me over. Uh, they, they, there was a, a, a lecture about insects by one of them, and then I got a, a part, a small part on which it was written uh, that I get this prize for describing, now I quote, the humble world of insects in a loving and accurate manner. <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I liked it a lot because for me, you know, in the literary world, when you get a literary prize, there is a lot. Sometimes you get the literary prize because the professor uh, 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 who was in the committee doesn't like another writer who deserved this prize more than you did. And all these kind of, of, of interrelationships in the literary world. But when you get, you get a literary prize from entomological society, it means you really deserve it. <laughs>
<laughs> but which were the insects you had described? I mean, were all kind of. Uh, here, I, I must say something about the, the way they taught uh, zoology in the early days of Zionism in in Israel. How they taught zoology in in the classes of moshavim and kibbutzim. These are the the different kind of agricultural settlements. Uh, the schools were so ideological at, at this time that even the world of nature was judged politically and ideologically. So in, in the book, one of the books of zoology from these days, uh, there was the sentence for the pupils, when you go to the field, when you meet a mammal, an insect, or a reptile, ask him, are you a friend or a foe? Which means, do you support Zionism or you're <laughs> against Zionism? <laughs> now, the, there, were, there were, of course, uh, for example, the black snake was a great friend of Zionism because it was eating the mice, which were horrible enemies of Zionism. They were eating our wheat. Uh, uh, the, great the greatest enemy of Zionism was, was the Anopheles mosquito, who infected our pioneers in, with malaria and killed many of them. So, so uh, uh, th this way of looking at nature was unique to this, uh, uh, to, to the, to, to this time. And, and I grew up in, in one of these Moshavim, and I remember it very vivid. And it's a, a sort of a side track, but I know that you've written a lot of uh, children's stories. I know that one of them is called How the Neanderthal Inadvertently Invented the Kebab. <laughs> Um, and we talked a bit earlier about what children's writing means to you and how seriously you take it. Could you say a bit about that, about being a, children, a writer for children, but also obviously a writer for grown-ups? Well, these are two different trades, that, but you can find them in one person without any problem. I'm not the only writer in Israel who writes both for children and, and, and grown-ups. Uh, First, I started to write children's books only after my own children were born. And as it happened was that I was inventing stories for them and telling them. And then one day my wife said, this is not a bad story. Maybe you will try to, to write as a, as, a, as a children's book. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I wrote, as a, wrote it as a children's book. And then uh, uh, this, is, this was the way the work was done in our home. I would make up stories for my children. My wife would listen and say, this is good or this is not good. And the one she said that they are good, I would write as, <laughs> as, as a book. But I think it, it all started from the days when, when I was a, a, a little boy and my parents taught me to read and write at, at the early age of three and a half or four, the way, you know, this is a Jewish tradition. Uh, I think the Israeli Ministry of Education made a terrible mistake by teaching the alphabet only at the age of six in, in, in primary school. For thousands of years, we did it at the age of three. Uh, and, and I remember this joy of reading, the, this feeling of, uh, as, a, as, a, as a little boy, this independence and power that, that a, little, a little child can have when we are able to read our first book by ourselves. And this was the motivation behind my, my writing. And the other thing, which also has to do with my dealing with the Bible, is that, that my father, who was both a, a poet and a Bible scholar and a Bible teacher, and you have to understand that in Israel you can be a completely secular person and yet show a, a great interest in, in the Bible and great knowledge of the Bible, like my father did. Uh, he used to tell us the biblical stories on location. When we studied uh, uh, David and Goliath battle, it was in the valley of Elah. He took the Bible, he brought with him a friend who knew how to, to operate, to shoot with a slingshot, and he read the story, and the friend shot stones all around. It was very attractive, it was very uh, impressing. When we studied about uh, Eliyahu, the prophet, it was on Mount Carmel. Mm -hmm. uh, when it was about King Saul, it was on Mount Gilboa, where Saul was killed in, in committed suicide in his last battle. Um, this was all very strong, very impressive, very interesting. Uh, he, he taught us both the, 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 our Bible and Greek mythology 
stories, and, and I think it all came from these uh, first impressions that I had as a child. It's wonderful. So here's my last question that takes us back to, to literature for grown-ups. Um, you, you made a remarkable comment earlier today when we were walking. You were distinguishing between uh, what it's like for a writer to get inside the head of a character and what it's like for a writer to get inside the head of an actual other human being. And in contrasting those two things, you said, writers are dictators in relation to their characters. They make them do these awful things, and they put them in these awful situations. Now, I've heard a lot of writers say something like the opposite of that, namely <laughs> that they defer to the wishes of their characters as they evolve and develop spontaneously. I was just curious. I'd be eager to have you say a bit more about being a dictator in relation to your characters. Well, as much as I am democratic and try <laughs> to be liberal in my personal lives and in my family life and my, my life in Israel, uh, uh, when I write a book, uh, I do behave like a tyrant. I, I go in the path uh, phrased by, by Henry Fielding in the story of Tom Jones, where he said, this was, I think, 150 or 200 years ago, he already wrote that this book, he said, this is my kingdom, this is where I write the laws. And if one of the readers do not like it, he can always go to another book. You know, you, you don't have to stay in this book if you don't like our, uh, our, our uh, rules. And uh, I mean, many, many times I'm asked by, by readers, why did you kill him? You know, I didn't kill him, you know, this is the story I devised. And another thing is that this man never lived. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, it's a literary character. <laughs> I, I know that some writers re think that, that, that uh, we, we all create, we, we create life, we create a life story, we create uh, imaginary worlds, but we have to be modest. These people are not real people, you know. Uh, uh, um, you ha we have to remember where we are and, and the sorrow or the pain of a real person are far greater than the destiny that sometimes we write for an imaginary uh, 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 character. So many characters in my novels, uh, uh, and it, so it happens in other novels as well, uh, do suffer disasters and, and pains and, and, and some know happiness and... and, and uh, this is all, it, it's all coming from our imagination. But when there is a writer involved, uh, uh, the reader has an address. He can ask the, the person responsible. When it happens in real life, we don't know whom, whom shall we ask about uh, things that happen to us. If you are a believer, you can ask God. He doesn't always respond. Uh, if you are not, then you, you can invent your own theories of how things happening. Thank you. Well, I, I thank you very much. It was a pleasure to, to talk to you.